Thank you for listening to Together for Peace with Reem Gunaim. So, welcome to the season two premiere of Together for Peace. Thank you for being part of our journey to shed light on the sustainable solutions for peace. We live in a world where the most peaceful nations on earth continue to become more peaceful, while the least peaceful places continue to deteriorate. At a time where the peace inequality gap continues to grow, we have a responsibility to take action and reverse this trend. We reverse this trend by protecting human rights for all people. We must start by engaging in positive conversations to build mutual understanding and embrace the discomfort of learning and evolving. Each time we collaborate and grow together, we actively promote peace equality. Together for Peace is a global platform for agents of change from all walks of life. We generate conversations that motivate, educate, and activate our online community to cultivate peace solutions that care. Together, we will globally fill the gap to solve peace inequality. Without further ado, I am humbled to introduce Dr. Sean Neeland. Dr. Sean Neeland is a charismatic leader who spreads love, integrity, faith, and trust wherever he goes. He is a lead minister and CEO of the Highland Christian Center here in Portland, Oregon. He is an accomplished author for four books, a dedicated mentor, and a powerful motivational speaker. Sean is a voice for interfaith dialogue, reaching tolerance and kindness for all people. He believes that our religions and spiritual practices are a part of our shared human heritage. In times of division, tension, and polarization, Sean believes that religion can be a positive power to bring mutual understanding, spread kindness, and elevate love within our communities. Dr. Neeland has seven academic degrees and has received over 100 distinguished awards and decorations throughout his career for outstanding service to his nation. While on deployment, Sean was responsible for advising leaders and ensuring the spiritual care of over 46,000 people at nine installations. As a woman raised by Muslim traditions, I am privileged to elevate the and shared values, to elevate the shared values of our different faiths and celebrate prestigious Christian leader who loves all people of all faiths, nationalities, and backgrounds. Let's dive into the fascinating intersection of religion, community, and peace with Dr. Sean Nealon. Welcome to the show, Dr. Nealon. Thank you, Reem. I am so excited to be a part of your panel. It's, it's my honor to have you. So let's start right, right now. And my first question is really about your upbringing and how did you think that helped contribute to shaping your leadership skills did you, were there any indications of early charismatic leadership qualities that you had? Uh, help us, you know, take us on a journey since your early days. Well, definitely. Yes, Reem, I appreciate that. Uh, you, you made me smile because I definitely thought about my early childhood 
when I grew up in the streets of New Orleans, uh, I say the streets or the city of New Orleans, <laughs> I hope I wasn't on the streets. Uh, it was an inner city type feel though, uh, a very eclectic community of uh, French, um, African, uh, Spanish. And so the particular neighborhood I grew up in was multicultural um, to that degree and not too far from the famous French quarters you might be familiar with. And so, yes, the New Orleans French quarters. I was about a mile and a half to two miles at most uh, from the French quarters. And uh, when I was a kid, I used to get in trouble by, with my mom and the neighbors for leading their kids into destruction, uh, <laughs> jumping off of roofs, uh, maybe throwing a few rocks here and there uh, at things we should not have thrown rocks at. Um, and and my, I remember this one lady, Miss Lucille, she would say to my mom, uh, she says, your son, he's an instigator. He's just leading my kids into destruction. That little Sean is an instigator. But little did I know that was just me being a leader and getting the group together and uh, uh, trying to make a, a, a fun time out of it from my perspective. And so it did start at an early age where I would get involved and be this outspoken uh, person um, but I also of note remember uh, that I was the one who jumped in for those who were being bullied. So I, if you were in trouble, it was like I had this sense of a protector, this sense that, uh, in fact, that I can make a difference. And so I received my first uh, black eye uh, uh, in a fight protecting a guy who was overweight and I just wanted to make a difference. And I said, that's not right. They were hitting him with the ball, kicking him in his rear. And I just jumped in instead of being a bystander. And, and, and of course I lost that particular battle, but I won a lot of respect. And I think that was, uh, I think that those two incidents remind me of who I am today. A person who gets involved, will not stand on the sidelines, will stand up for justice and peace, and then a person who leads. Um, I think the underpinning kind of principle from that story for me is that leaders are associated with the quality of protection because we, basically hand that responsibility for leaders to protect us um, and we trust that they would so it is interesting how you got to it maybe not in the most positive way to <laughs> in the fight them because we're all kids that wasn't peaceful that, that wasn't, wasn't peaceful, peaceful. <laughs> yeah. but but that's the fascinating part of our journey of evolving and learning and i know that spiritual learning for you and uh, religious practice has shaped your life and has really been the way you manifest your personality in the world today. So I wonder what, why spiritual practice and religion practice is important to you? Why is it important for our communities? For our communities and for me personally, it is the foundation of my life. It's really what I live for. Um, the last 30 years or so, I have been practicing my faith as a leader, not only as a participant, but in 1987, I received what's called a calling uh, to preach the gospel. And um, 
ever since then, I've been studying and preparing and meeting with people and learning and then teaching others eventually. So it is my foundation is it's it's for me it's what I was destined to do. I believe in share faith. And faith is the belief in uh something greater than yourself. And uh for me, I believe in uh, Christ, of course, I'm a Christian, and I understand, Reem, you are a Muslim, but we both share a commonality, and that is faith, that we believe in a greater power outside of ourselves, and we rely on that power, uh, God, for uh, strength uh, to go forward and to uh, do the things that we are uh, designed to do. And so, Yes. Uh, so I started preaching at the age, uh, I guess I was uh, in my early 20s um, and mid-20s. And then uh, by the time I was a commission officer, I started off enlisted in the military. And I know we'll get to that later. But um, I, I was ordained uh, by, uh, I was licensed to preach in 88 and ordained to preach in 1990. So quite some time, 30 years being ordained. Wow. Uh, why do you think that was, why was, why was an interesting uh, fact? Why you wanted to highlight that as a fact? Why is that significant? That's significant to me because it, it's, it's like our journey in life where you have to, you have to make a, a determination. What are you to become? We all are seeking what are we to become? How are we going to make a difference in the world? And all of us are important. Each of us are important. Uh, but we uh, have to find that niche. What are you called to do? And for me, it was to stand in front of crowds and share hope and inspiration, uh, motivation. And so I have done that in a variety of ways uh, ever since, and uh, it's been a great journey. So that that is why it's important to me because, and I don't think it's just limited to the assembling inside of a mosque or a temple or synagogue or a church. It is broad where you are inspiring people um, all around you, and, and I think that is important as well. Yeah, I, I love this notion that we all have the power to impact the people we um, come across every day. You don't need that platform to do that. You can, you know, by, you know, your sheer kindness, your uh, interest in bringing hope to people by really being a blessing in someone, uh, someone's life. Mm -hmm. And the moment you meet them or interact with them, you're actually, uh, you're, you're, you're having an impact. Uh, and but you know an impact could be uh, multiple people could be at 100 it could be 40,000 uh, but every time but every action counts and every impact counts I, I like this notion so back to where you are now uh, it's uh, the Haven um, uh, Highland Haven is that what is that's mean? correct we have Highland Christian Center and then yeah. we have Highland Haven which is a offspring nonprofit in the community making a difference yeah so i want to learn more about how um your organization is really impacting the community in portland and especially the most vulnerable populations like homeless uh, people 
Um, yeah. So what kind of activities does your um, uh, church and your um, organization do for, for the community? Yes, um, um, uh, we are multifaceted, as you said, the church as well as the uh, Highland Haven or both engage uh, constantly in community activities. Uh, for instance, we feed every Friday um, uh, through what we call the food bank. So this morning at 10 o'clock to 12 o'clock, there were people lined up coming to Highland Christian Center um, to receive food for the week, which is very important. I saw one report in California due to COVID-19. There were people standing in line, Reem, for over eight hours to get one box of food. And so I feel really good at what we do every week in providing fresh food. Uh, we just receive donations today. In fact, I was notified by other organizations who are recognizing what we're doing for the community. Not only that, every Sunday morning, we do a homeless breakfast at 8.30. And uh, we feed about 30 uh, every week. And that started... Uh, it's been going on uh, through COVID and before COVID. It's not because of COVID. So these are recurring things we do in the community. I was also notified this week, perfect timing, that our dental van at Highland Christian Center, we just now uh, served over 83 patients, free health care, cleaning of teeth. Yes, uh, the cost would have been $23,000 of free services to the community. Those who can't afford dental work, getting their teeth pulled, cleaned, et cetera. And so these are the kind of things we're doing. Now that's uh, just some of the things. Then we have uh, what's called the HIAC, uh, Highland African-American Youth uh, Community Coalition. Uh, we have a uh, minister Deshaun Hardy who heads that up on our team. And it's to counter the pervasiveness of drugs and alcohol in specifically those people of African descent to really counter this pervasiveness. Uh, I grew up Reem, in the inner cities of New Orleans, for instance. I don't know if you experienced this in Palestine, but we had uh, a bar room, a liquor establishment, on almost every corner. So I live three doors, Reem, from a bar room with a uh, pool table, with, uh, you know, alcohol served, uh, lasciviousness with the women and men and prostitution and, you know, you will say sex trafficking of some sort in those days. Um, it was bad. And I live as a kid three doors down. And so why am I saying that? Giving you an example, this is the pattern across America in the inner cities where there are these establishments that cater to the young people and get you hooked on uh, substance abuse um, through either alcohol, drugs, or, or cigarettes and addicted to these things. And now you're hampered in life. And so we have a program that counters that. So we deal with legislation, we deal with um, uh, 
the, the governor's office, we deal with the mayor's office, and we just try to be an advocate. In fact, I spoke at uh, the vaping uh, uh, law reform, where we were trying to counter the easy sale of vaping products to youth. So I was a panelist on that uh, in the last 12 months. So that's a big program. Then we have the health and wellness, which I've already spoke about, the dental van and uh, the coalition uh, for uh, COVID-19. So we are participating in our church directly in tracing, being, uh, being a part of the system, uh, education, sanitization, uh, teaching hygiene practices. We give out a lot of hygiene kits in the community. So these are the kind of things uh, that we are doing for our youth. Uh, and we have a leg that's kind of dormant right now. Uh, it's for our rehabilitation of those coming out of prison. Now, right now, that is not as um, active as it needs to be, but we're working on that. And then the final one I'll share with you is the Highland Leadership Youth Academy. And uh, so we educate boys and girls on uh, core values to change their mindsets, to help them to believe in themselves, to have self-esteem, because I believe, that's my pet peeve, that when I don't believe in myself, then I'm gonna dislike myself, then I'm capable to do anything uh, towards myself, self-harm and murder and violence and um, uh, throwing my body to drugs or to sex or uh, et cetera. And so we're trying to counter this narrative. And uh, that's one of my lifelong goals. Wow. Um, yeah, Sean, this is, um, to me, is, is very inspiring. It reminds me of a concept in, um, that I've come across, experiential learning. And mm -hmm. I, what I noticed from what you're describing is that religion uh, could, you know, cultivate, you know, brings our attention, our intention to do kindness, to give, to be generous, to care. But I think the programs that you're describing is really puts those values into practice. Because when the participants of the church or the community of the church uh, go out to the community and meet the homeless, meet the people who need the help, uh, learn about their um, issues and really hand, um, hand out the, the services and, and give them a hand in, on their journey for recovery and uh, to feed them and to care for them you cultivate compassion at scale beyond just the breaching. The breaching is just um, kind of the step number one and then all these steps. Um, and you, you um, raise a compassionate community around the, the, the ecosystem of, of the church, which, it, which is fascinating for me uh, to know um, about. Yeah, in Palestine, we didn't have, um, you know, all that concentration of bars and access to bars. Uh, which is sad for me to, to hear about because I know drugs and alcohol is, is um, a paralyzing um, element of, um, and it's really limiting people's potential and uh, hooks people on drugs and, and vaping is, is horrible. It, it gets, uh, do you, can you tell us a little bit about vaping? Because that is for, for the young people who are watching us. A lot of people, a lot of young people watch us now and vaping is uh, invading schools, invading communities, and um, 
hooks young people on drugs. Yeah. So tell us, tell us a little bit about that. I think you've, you've hit it. Uh, basically, uh, vaping hooks you to, um, this drug, uh, to, to make you feel good and, and, but, and it tastes good now they've, and then that was a part of it, uh, trying to get rid of the flavors that attracts the youth. If we can change that because, uh, that draws them in, it hooks them. And then we have found that it can cause serious harm to, to the body. And, um, I, of course, people debate uh, the harmfulness of vaping and then people dying from vaping um, and, and, and the lung disorders uh, that could be lifelong. And so it is very harmful for a young person to get hooked on this uh, system uh, and we, we advocate against it, uh, due to its addictiveness and it's par I like the word you use is paralyzing in the sense, uh, that you, you don't get the education. You don't rise to the highest economic levels you can, because if you get hooked on drugs and vaping, um, and I can't not empirically say vaping will lead to harder drugs, but it could because it creates this environment of, uh, you know, I'm relying on a substance to change my mood, to change who I am. And, and we try to speak against that kind of reliance and, and have self-reliance uh, and confidence in oneself uh, to, to be who you are to be. Thank you, Dr. Sean, for shedding light on these important issues that we lack a sufficient health care, we lack a, uh, food for the people who needs it. We need, we need the most vulnerable to access health and food and mm -hmm. uh, rehabilitation. Um, and, and thank you for, for all the work you're doing in regards to that. Uh, it's really inspiring. Um, so, which leads me to think about the concept of intentional kindness. That's a concept you preach, concept yes. written about, concept you live by. So enlighten us about what is intentional kindness and how can we apply it into our peace building projects or practices in our communities and our relationships? Yes, I think intentional kindness is, is a, it is a key pillar of peace uh, when we can be kind to one another um, on purpose. When we determine that we are going to be kind, when we say we are going to do random acts of kindness. Now, I didn't coin that term, random acts of kindness, uh, but I think it takes the right heart. It takes the right attitude to say that I want to be kind to others. And um, uh, by the way, we had a clothing drive at Highland we received from, uh, I want to give the store the right credit, but I can't remember the name. It is a major brand. Uh, they dropped off thousands of dollars of women's clothing off the rack. So what we did is we made a schedule. And I can tell you for almost a two-week period, we had women coming through of all ethnicities, of all um, creeds, coming through to pick up their clothing. That's intentional. We didn't try to make money. 
uh, Nordstrom. It was Nordstrom. Uh, and we didn't try to pay, uh, make money, of course. Uh, some people would turn around and take these clothes off the racks in bags and make it a sale. We made it a community outreach. And when uh, we were ending up, here's what we did. We opened the doors of the church. Uh, and this is during COVID. And of course, we had limited people can come in at any one time and in the fellowship hall. And we put signs all in the neighborhood around the corner saying, please come get free clothing. And I, I tell you that because that's kindness. That is intentional kindness where there are people who can't afford clothes. There are people who, as you know, can't afford to eat a meal. America, for all of our richness and vast uh, prosperity across the land, it's hard for me to conceive that our children are going to bed hungry every night. So millions of children are in poverty. Millions of children are suffering. Uh, in America, not to mention around the world. And so we as a church need to be the light of intentional kindness, to do positive acts, to make people see that there is hope. And of course, uh, for us, uh, we, we're not preaching to people when we're giving them breakfasts. We're not preaching to people when we give them clothing or anything like that. Uh, but if they want to know what inspires us, it is our faith. It is our hope in Christ for us from our uh, vantage point. But the main thing is respecting all people and doing acts of kindness. Here's one for you. When I was in the military, um, I had to go into a top secret area because I was a mill store satellite like commander. That's a lot. I know. So there were these satellites that I was uh, controlling um, around the globe. And so, um, but I had this passion to do random acts of kindness. So in one of my doctoral projects, I had to act out the project. And so I act out servant evangelism. So how do we do it? So one, um, one uh, uh, cold morning, I got a group of volunteers and we had some coffee and we gave out this coffee free to everyone coming through the portals. And uh, we had to scan our eyes and all of this to get into this top secret area. And, and they could not believe it. And then we set up a uh, shoe shine uh, thing. And, and here I was a captain at the time. We had majors, captains, sergeants, shining shoes. And everyone was saying military shoes. They're like, wait a minute, what's the catch? What do you want from us? And we said, nothing. We're just showing God's love in a practical way. And so that's kind of So basically what you're saying in any community, regardless what that community is, and the military is a community like any other, you know, in that way, um, it's not different from other communities. You can still be kind to the person next to you by doing something that they didn't expect, they didn't anticipate. Uh, they, they don't feel that they're entitled to, but you, you act from a place of generosity. Uh, I want to take you back to that point about America being one of the richest countries in the world, yet um, there are people who are still struggling to have food and access to basics. Um, so 
what is your message? Because if, if someone with abundance, because we have uh, many millionaires and billionaires in America, yes. uh, do you feel they have a duty and responsibility um, to give to those who are less fortunate? Um, because out of kindness, why is that important? Um, what message would you want to tell them? Yes, I, I certainly, I would say to those who have uh, achieved uh, great status and stature as far as monetary gain, uh, it is their money. That's what America is built on, capitalism. Uh, I don't um, say that we need to mandate that they do anything, but I would hope um, that they would want to be philanthropists. I would hope that they want to be giving uh, as they can help others achieve what they have achieved. And um, but, but what I, I do believe in, Areen, um, is that we as a government um, can set up better programming not to uh, make people dependent on the government, but to say we will ensure that every American has the minimum that they need to survive and that they should not be hungry. They should not be sleeping on the streets. I, I mean, if I were mayor, if I were governor, uh, I, I, I could not, I would not stand for homeless on the streets. I would have to figure out a way to, to, to get them into a place where they can recover, where they can have a, a, a way forward to get back on their feet get them into some kind of job core program uh, to, to get them to uh, be involved in society again. So there has to be a way, intentional kindness, and have that attitude that we don't want to leave anyone behind. We want to ensure that all people are treated equally and given a fair advantage and fair shot in America. And so we have the power to do it. There is no doubt. COVID-19 revealed that with stimulus checks. And, um, and of course, I don't think we're doing enough there. I have my own ideas on how to do that. But, um, but it shows that we have the capability in America to help those who are suffering. And, and, and so, again, I, I, this will be a longer dialogue, I, I know, to try to get into specifics of how we would implement such programs without taxing the government uh, overly or anything like that. But there are ways that we can uh, make a difference in every life in America. You know, in reading between the lines, what you just said, I think America is not lacking money is not lacking ideas America is lacking care mm -hmm. we need caring leadership we need an America people who care so thank you Dr. Sean for caring you know it's obvious from what you're doing it's obvious from the passion of, and how on how you're describing your care for homeless people um, so we need to have this intentional kindness intentional care towards our fellow humans who um, who need our help yeah, and, and, and I think we are uh, several when we care. 
actually, I recently, I have to share the story because we are on it, you know, it's dialogue. So let me share a story for everyone about here. Um, so there was um, an anthropologist, I can't remember her name, Mead, she's famous. Um, so she basically was asked uh, about the first sign of uh, civilization. And she said it was uh, a broken um, thigh. So there's bro the broken uh, bone thigh, this bone thigh and it's broken. And so basically the fact that the, that broken um, and healed um, thigh it is an indication of civilization, which is, um, so the student who asked her that was surprised because he or she was expecting that she would say a vase or a jewelry, a jewelry or something that they found. And um, so they asked why this is uh, an indication of civilization. She said something along these lines that uh, humans, uh, animals, like if you were in the ancient, if you lived in ancient life, um, if you were hurt or injured, you would be eaten alive. You, you, can't, you don't have means of, su of surviving. Right. Uh, because you will be a, a food for other animals. Right. So, so for someone in that environment, for a human to help a human, um, so if you are a human and you have a broken thigh in that time, basically um, someone was there to care for you. Someone had to bring you food. Someone had to shelter you. Someone had to care for you for months and had to protect themselves. So, so basically caring for that other human being, that broken uh, bone, thigh bone is really an, an indication of that caring for one another as humans and, and for being civil. So that's what distinguish us from animals. Uh, and, and that's where I think your role um, is reminding us about that concept of caring, of, right. of standing for one another and supporting one another. That's what makes us civilized. Um, so, so that was my anthropology story that I didn't articulate probably well. No, uh, it makes sense though that, that we should care and that's what makes us different from just an animal. We're not an animal, we're a human being uh, and we're all equal, um, uh, Reem. And I think that is significant, if I may just jump on that just a little bit, is that that's the, the, the issue is that we differentiate between humans based on wealth, based on the lack thereof, uh, the color of our skin, or uh, our background, our ethnicities. And um, I don't believe in multiple races. I believe in the human race. And anthropologists, speaking of anthropologists, have confirmed it. But yet it is in everyone's language, it's in everyone's dialogue. Oh, the white race, the black race, the yellow race, the Asian race, the Middle Eastern race. Uh, we're one human race. And if we can see our brothers and sisters as human and not animals or not cattle, and that's where slavery evolved all around the world, uh, not just for the African descent person, but for the Jewish person, for uh, the Palestinian person, for, I mean, we can go around the world uh, for the European person. Uh, there have been periods of slavery um, based on someone viewing that other group of people as less than, and that they were not as important as my group or myself. 
And so that's part of uh, this human caring, intentional kindness when you see everyone as a person. And by the way, that's my theory, part of my hypothesis of why we have such uh, vileness with police brutality disproportionately with those of the African uh, descent community. Uh, police kill more in the European descent community. That's 197 million people, but they kill about 300 a year on average of European descent. In the African descent, they kill about 150 uh, a year. Now, when you look at those numbers, you go, well, see, more European descent are killed. But when you put the proportionality of 197 million uh, European descent versus 43 million of African descent, you begin to see that there is a two times more likely case of being killed by the police. Now, my theory or hypothesis is because of the stereotypical media and bombardment over centuries in America, that if you have more melanin in your DNA, which you have melanin, I have melanin, I just have a little more than you. And so uh, because I have more melanin, then I am seen as a threat. So psychologically, I am now more likely to be treated with uh, an aggressive style and behavior. And then I am more likely, statistics bear out, to die proportionately according to my population size. Yeah, it's tragic. It's it tragic that we are not seeing the underpinning connection of our humanity. And that is for us to care for one another. That's how we became civilized. We protect mm -hmm. one another. We're there for one another. Uh, so to me, conflict is really an, um, a sign that we are off track and we are not, we're off civilization. Poverty is a sign of, of us being off, off civilization. Uh, I mean, that's what, as we have a duty of care um, as peace builders, as agents of change around the world. So Dr. Sean, of course, um, all these values come from your life experiences, your um, your teachings, your uh, you know the, your religion. So I am uh, I'm very intrigued by to hear one of your favorite uh, Bible stories. If you can share with us an inspiring story, I shared my anthropology story. So I want to hear a Bible story that can inspire all humanity. Okay, and after I share this story, I'm not going to ask for an offering. I promise, I'm not going to ask for. An <laughs> it's just. <laughs> You know, religious stories are a human stories to me. Exactly. Yeah, they are a human heritage. They're like a spiritual heritage that we all, I think all of us should be exposed to. Yeah. I always love to hear about religion stories because I feel they are in at heart the same. This, you know, so I, I want to know a, a Bible. Well, one of my favorite that deals with, I think, as you said, uh, the rubric of my life, the, who I am, um, core values, uh, and we may talk about this more, of love, integrity, and faith. I mean, I really try to live by those core values of love, integrity, and faith. And uh, Jesus told of this story uh, in the New Testament about helping our neighbors and caring for our neighbors. 
and just what we're talking about. And he was pointing out and highlighting how sometimes it's difficult when we don't see that other person as valued as us, or we don't see them um, deserving of help. And so he told this story about a Samaritan um, in those days, uh, who in biblical times, who was going around a corner on the road from Jericho uh, to Jerusalem. Um, and it was a meandering, winding path. And uh, he was attacked by some robbers. And he was robbed and left for dead and wounded. And um, then he goes on to tell a story that as uh, people pass by, um, uh, no one would help. And, and I got this backwards in my mind. I'm sorry. It was the Jewish man walking by. It was the Jewish man walking by, uh, or the Jewish person who got robbed on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. And so, uh, as the first walked by, a priest walked by and the priest, uh, walked by and refused to help this man, uh, and said, I, I might get robbed too. I, I don't have any, I, I, can't, I can't risk myself. And then he goes on to tell a story of the next person who walked by. And, and still, you would think uh, a religious figure, uh, they would stop and help. But they did not. They thought about themselves and they refused to help this man. But finally, a Samaritan, that's the story, the good Samaritan. Uh, who decides I am going to help this person of Jewish origin and um, I am going to risk my life. Uh, there might be robbers still around there. And I love when Martin Luther King expounded on this story one time. He says, all of the other passerbys, they ask the question, what will happen to me if I help this man? But the Samaritan reversed it and said, what will happen to this man if I don't stop to help him? And that's the big point. And so he helped him and he took him to the end, got him medical attention and care, and even paid for his meal and his lodging and any services that he need and needed. And that's the moral. And, and, and when Jesus told this story, he told it at a time where Samaritans and the Jewish population, the two would never meet and they, they should never come together. And they were rivals. They were enemies of each other. And so he poignantly made the point. Uh, he poignantly pointed to the fact that you can help someone who's different than you. You should help someone who doesn't look like you who doesn't talk like you, worship like you. And, and it doesn't matter if you have different religious backgrounds. It is about the human concept and caring. Which is, uh, really reminds me of uh, a Rotary's notion. We, we believe in service above self. That's actually our motto. Mm. Um, and in a way, I've never actually connected the two before, the Good Samaritan and uh, the service above self. So like Martin Luther King framed it, it's the question, asking the right question. Right. What would happen to, to others if I don't step in? So taking right. responsibility uh, is really a sign of leadership, a sign of civility, a sign of caring, 
an intention of kindness. So thank you for this. Sorry. Uh, so part of um, the mission of our together from this webinar is really to build and bridge mutual understanding and to learn about perspectives um, that uh, are different and also to dismantle stereotypes and negative um, ideas um, and, and stereotypes. So um, is there a stereotype, or like what is misunderstood about religion um, or Christianity in the world, um, in Portland, in the US or, or the world? Is there any stereotypical um, concepts about religion and Christianity that um, are out there that you'd like to explain to us? Well, one of the first things would be, uh, as I jokingly said, uh, people think that churches are designed just to take people's money and that uh, you're, not, you're not doing anything for me. What do I get out of giving my money to a church? And, um, and, and, and as you see what we're doing at Highland, we are intentional about taking those funds and using them to better the community and to reach out and to be a light and to be hope. Um, to be an inspiration to those, uh, to be brokers of peace, if you will. And, and, and I think so that's a stereotypical view of the church that all churches want is to collect your money and it's a big social club and we're not going to, you know, make an impact in the community. Um, another one is that is tied to this is that we won't do things for the community, that the church has the capability often, but does not choose to get involved in the community. And, um, and that's a, a battle we are always fighting. And, and, and some people have proof that churches are more inward focused rather than outward focused. But I don't believe that's the mission of the church, to go into the world and preach the gospel, to be examples of light and hope uh, for people is what really uh, the Bible teaches us to do. And so we need to go out into the world. We need to be um, um, points of light. We need to be uh, beacons of hope. And uh, so, so that's, those are two that come to mind readily that the church um, needs to continue to fight against those narratives. Now, there are some that make that narrative uh, come to light, of course, and, um, but, but by and large, that's not what the church is about. The church is not about just collecting money to fatten the, the staff's pockets or the pastor's pockets. Um, and then secondly, churches are not designed to be inwardly focused but to be outwardly focused in the community. Um, I love that. Um, it's, it's really actually, I, I thought, I, I, in a way, I think maybe I came across that stereotype, a typical uh, image myself, like in mm -hmm. movies and it's in culture. It's interesting it's in, in our subconscious. So thank you for really dismantling that um, and enlightening us a little bit more. So, um, my next question is really about, um, you know, your service in the military and you've seen, you've been around the world. And so we all know that wars are tragic and they are um, unfortunately um, an ongoing reality of our world, but they're tragic and uh, war, no, no one wins in war. Everybody's a loser in my opinion. Um, and so 
wars also polarizes our world. So we have, um, it creates a notion, um, you know, of Islamophobia. And so the Muslim countries would also fear the West and uh, the Western countries would fear the Muslims. And so we have this polarization around, around that that is caused by, by wars. So I want to thank you for preaching humanity and kindness and intentional. Oh. the troops. Um, so I wonder how does your teachings uh, really dismantle those misconceptions, how they help um, really inject um, and alleviate that, um, um, that polarization in our world? Yes, um, very well stated. Uh, no one wants to go to war. Any military person, I served 35 years and I was a part of three wars, uh, two, uh, I was in um, Iraq, and then in Baghdad, and then I, for seven months, and then I was in, uh, oh, for five months, and then in Kandahar, uh, Afghanistan, for another uh, seven months. Uh, war is ugly, Clausewitz would say, the great uh, strategist. And no one wants war. War is a last resort. We try to use dipl diplomatic means. Uh, we try to use informational means. Uh, we try to use economic means, but military is the last means that we use as a strategy. It's called DIME, D-I-M-E. Uh, military is a last resort for America. When I was a nuclear launch officer, uh, we had a motto. We were a second strike nation. Even though my job was to launch a nuclear weapon around the globe, I know you're probably thinking, oh man, how could you be a preacher uh, and launch a weapon? Well, it was to preserve the peace. It was deterrence. It was to say, we are ready to go to war if we must defend freedom and democracy for all, but we don't want to go to war. But we will strike if provoked or attacked. And that's what we did. And we had a motto when I was there that said, we ended the Cold War. Uh, when, when Ronald Reagan, President Reagan said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down those walls, uh, we felt like we were the main factor, those of us who were on alert 24-7, uh, uh, serving in, in, a, in a underground 60 feet, ready to launch weapons. Uh, of nuclear uh, destruction. And I think uh, that's the, my mindset. So I think I see myself as a broker of peace. We had one nuclear uh, missile entitled uh, the Peace uh, Keeper uh, because it was so devastating that uh, it helped thwart, the technology was so advanced that it really escalated uh, the, the talks of disarmament and the peace treaties, um, the, SALT, the SALT treaties, and those kinds of things. So um, I feel, uh, Reem, that uh, my job in the military was really not as a warmonger, uh, but as a peace broker and to represent freedom. Uh, so you and I can uh, be talking, a person from Palestine, uh, talking to a person of African descent or Hispanic descent, you know, that we can uh, come together and dialogue. That's because of freedom in America. Uh, we can never forget that. Just the other day, uh, seven Marines lost their lives um, 
in a uh, water carrier, uh, there's something went wrong, but you probably maybe have not seen it. Most people will not have seen it. It doesn't make uh, the headlines. It, if it did, it was a blip on the screen. Um, and, and those are the things that trouble me that our attention is on the NBA returning or uh, the presidential race or, uh, you know, of course, and it should be on COVID and it should be on some of those things, but we don't give enough attention to those who preserve the peace is all I'm saying. We don't even recognize, that's a tragedy. Those families are devastated by those loss of seven Marines, uh, I think six Marines and one sailor. But I make that point to tell you, when we went to those wars, our goal was just to defend that nation, that indigenous group. Our goal was not to invade, to take over the country, um, uh, but to stand alongside them and fight against the tyranny of oppression, uh, to fight against the terrorists, the Taliban, those who would wanna hurt their own people, we fought against that. We uh, did not go there uh, to tear up a country, as many would say or report. Um, as you said, some fear Americans coming into their nation. But we only go into the nation when we felt it was a, a uh, link to national security. And, and it tied directly into America's uh, sovereignty and peace or our allies' sovereignty and peace. So uh, when I was in Afghanistan, for example, we wanted to connect with the community and we would go out um, and uh, give out uh, goods to the local Afghan uh, community and uh, that, those were great memories of sharing uh, uh, kindness and acts of intentional kindness with them, giving them goods, giving them uh, products, hygiene, boxes. Uh, those, that was uh, uh, the highlight uh, of my every week, every Saturday. Uh, I will go out with a group of people and we organize and we, we led this. Uh, it was intentional kindness winning the hearts and minds, letting them know that we're on their side, that America cares and we're not there uh, to destroy. In fact, we also did education. We did education for girls even, which was forbidden under uh, the laws at the time, that girls could not get educated. And so, uh, as you're quite familiar with, and so we wanted to ensure that we were brokers of peace and humanity. So I have a lot to unpack here. Uh, <laughs> so uh, first, thanks for uh, for you trying to help the community, the local community in Afghanistan. And it was actually uh, uh, nice to see that the children there um, are not scared of the soldiers. It's different from my experience, really, because I was, you know, I was scared of the soldiers in, in right. Palestine, um, you know, on checkpoints pointing guns at me. Right. So, is really probably a complex um, phenomena that it's really, it manifests differently um, in different regions and in different cultures and in different armies even. Um, so th that's something I wanted to highlight. But also I want to go back to the point where we were talking about poverty in America and the economic structures and the government structures in America. 
where I, I believe that there's a lot of investments um, in militarization and not enough in, um, in, in communities. And that was one of actually the messages that a lot of the uh, presidential um, candidates has run on several times that there is actually a critique of the US government, um, you know, focusing and spending tons of money on militarization and not investing in at home, um, which we really said we want more care from the government uh, there. So I wonder if like, if that is something that you, you feel that we, uh, and another thought, there's a one, one more. Um, I've, I think was a US president. I can't remember his name. I will remember. Reagan, Reagan or Bush or Obama? I have to remember. It was a, an early president. It was like someone from the early presidents who said okay. something along the lines that um, old men uh, create wars and young people fight it. And it is really a very powerful statement for us to question and have our leaders be accountable on sending young people to fight young people. Because it, as we see like the American soldiers, they go back home and they suffer from PTSD, they lose limbs, they lose. So, um, and then there's also the victims of war who, you know, families lose their, um, their, their parents and, and children. So it's, it's really war is tragic when you start to actually and um, War is ugly. It, war is ugly, is, is terrible. And I, and I think um, we need to, um, for, from, my, from my understanding, we really need to pay attention to what our leaders are asking of us to do and where they want us to spend our time and energy. And, and really um, um, understand that, I, I mean, I'm a, a, a preacher of positive peace and I believe in establishing um, um, establishing structures and systems and attitudes that build on the resilience of communities uh, rather than really investing in, uh, you know, peace through security. I, like you said, I think we both agree that war is not the first resort. It's unfortunately an option still in a, in a reality of our world, but it's never should be like the first resort, but should no. be the very last one. Yeah, so I, we both agree on that. Um, and hopefully we would never have any wars anytime, uh, anywhere. Um, and it's really tragic. Um, so just wanted to, um, to highlight some of those kind of unpack this. And I think part of this uh, together for peace is for us to really learn about each other's perspectives so, so we can all evolve and we can all learn and um, from one another and learn about different Perspective. So I really appreciate you sharing um, your perspective and um, helping me really think harder, think about, you know, what I believe in and what I would, you know, agree with and what I wouldn't agree with, which is, which is all we all grow, we all learn. Um, but I, I really want to go back to the picture that Anna shared of the children um, uh, with, when you handed them the, 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 was that cookies or food? What was that? Well, those are products. Those are, uh, they could be food in the box. I can't remember exactly. Uh, I think on the right, that is actually some type of food. Uh, on the left, it might be 
uh, socks, it can be uh, gloves, it can be uh, hats. Uh, we would get tons of this stuff. So what you see me holding, you see people behind me in the left picture, there are also those who are giving out things. And so we would take with us we would take boxes and boxes of things every week. So it's not limited to just food, but we did have some food products, um, you know, small snacks and things like that. But mainly it was um, the uh, products of, uh, uh, of clothing, clothing and those kinds of things. But again, uh, Reem, it's, it, it is, the point was, we wanted the community to recognize that yes, while war is ugly and uh, we know we're in your country, we want to have respect for your country, respect for uh, your culture. And so we tried to honor those things. Um, there were, like we said, some things we overcame that, that the people wanted, i.e. education for boys and girls, not just um, men or young men. So there were some things that were afoot and movement and change because those were the people in power who wanted that change. Um, but you, you, you know, you, you pointed out, do we spend too much in defense? Do we uh, spend too much on our military? I can't answer that. Um, I know it is needed. We have the largest defense budget in the world. You know this. We spend more than the next 10 countries, the, the top spenders. America spends more than the next 10 combined. So what that means is Russia, China, uh, South Korea, on and on, all North Korea. We spend 10, we spend ourselves more than 10. Um, so our budget is huge for war. So certainly, um, I believe that can be addressed if we wanted to and say, okay, do we need to spend 10 times as much? Maybe we should spend eight times as much or six and, and take those resources and allocate them to um, uh, another means, i.e. to our community, uh, to helping those people who are disenfranchised, who have been historically, by the way, disenfranchised in America. And so we're dealing with the systemic racism, as we call it, the systemic treatment of those who are different um, to make them feel less than, not have the same opportunity to reach the heights in America. Yeah, and um, I am, uh, yeah, it's, it's really complex. So I was wondering about like that picture uh, with the children because mm -hmm. To me, it was like, um, so the children, in a way, trust you. What are they? They trust you because they fear Taliban. So I'm really curious about that dynamic from you being there present. So like, what was Taliban like for, uh, you know, the Afghani community? What? Oh, yeah, uh, definitely. Um, these many, um, in fact, uh, as you may know, we had Afghani uh, personnel on our teams to go out and help become what we call liaisons in the community to spot out terrorist plots, 
um, those who are uh, taking action against the government, the local government, or taking action against uh, the U.S. coalition, uh, the military, and uh, coalition nations. So yes, it was quite um, an experience those people you see on those pictures, they were totally trusting of us. In fact, they were, they were what we call bazaars. And so uh, they would come and sell to the American people. Now, that doesn't mean every one of them were on our side. Some of them just saw money and the opportunity to make money, I'm sure. But they were very kind to us. Uh, the vendors were very glad we were there. And again, they would let us educate their children. They knew their children would be interacting with us every week. Um, I, I think the people recognize, Reem, that we were not there to do them harm, but to help deliver them from the oppressiveness of the Taliban and uh, to fight uh, for their freedom. And that's what we were really doing. We were coming alongside of them, training their military, by the way, uh, as it goes on today, to fight and defend their own nation and to counter uh, the oppressive tyranny of the Taliban. So for the average, you know, millennials probably are not, many of them probably are not familiar with Taliban. So to find like, is Taliban is a terrorist group and they're not part of a government. They are actually um, missionaries in the, in the country. You're right. Rising up as a as their own government, uh, and, and which you would call a coup, a coup, uh, taking over the government. It really is what they were doing. They took over uh, factions of, of cities and ran the cities as the seat of government. So they became a pseudo government, which, as you may know right now in the news, we're negotiating with them. Uh, to back down, to have peace. Uh, and so, so really, uh, you got that element too that I'm not as adverse on. Uh, that's, you know, where they have set up inroads where um, they are recognized in some factions. But the Afghan government itself is not of the Taliban, but they are recognizing some of the Taliban organizations and asking them for peace to stop killing one another to back down so there's some concessions going back and forth but again um i'm not the expert in there uh, I, I used to study it a lot more when i went to national war college for one year um, that's all i studied uh, and it's a very interesting world out there but i, I think the key is um, to recognize peace. And I want to give kudos to the U.S. While I think we can do more at home, we are the world's largest uh, a humanitarian effort around the world. We are the largest developers in third world countries. And so that's that, that balance that the U.S. needs to find. Okay, if we are the largest humanitarian country, we're the largest giver, hear me on this, Reem, to any disaster around the world. We help more people. We build more schools. We do any of that. But then when we come in to our, it is the irony. Can, I'm sorry, I'm preaching a little bit, but it's the irony. George Washington said this. He said, and I, I quoted this in my book. He says, 
right before the Revolutionary War, breaking off from Britain, he says, we must determine if we are to be free men or slaves. Now, he was saying this as they were trying to break off from Britain's oppression, and he felt, they felt, America, early America, before it was America, felt that the colonies felt they were enslaved. That's what he was quoting. But how ironic, Reem, was this. While he was making that statement, America itself was continuing the plan of owning slaves and owning people. That's my point. So while we go out into the entire world as the world's number one humanitarian aid, we give more than the European Union combined. But yet inside of the walls of America, we let people suffer. That's an interesting dichotomy. It is, it is, and, and I think that what you're highlighting is really insightful about the principle in which we do things and make decisions. Um, and um, a lot of people say America is policing the world, so that term policing the world reminds me of police brutality. <laughs> yeah. This dichotomy too, because, you know, we are all here in America, not, um, we're protesting police brutality, we're protesting of the violation of human and civil rights of the black community. And in the same way, I feel that when, um, when we spend so much on militarization, when we escalate violence, when we not uh, engage in diplomacy, we are in a way, um, uh, you know, violating, we are more likely to violate other people's human rights and we're more likely to hurt people, innocent people. And so that's where I think we need to really think hard and have the reflection as a collective to really question our systems and structures and attitudes in place because um, that's how change happens. That's how we evolve as, as a collective. And when we come together around the same principles and the human values. So now I am here, the preacher. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead, preacher. No, that's how change happens. It, 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 it is this organic change that we must recognize. And, and, and as you saw the picture at one of the Black Lives Rally, Lives Matter Rally, and I was speaking, um, and that was a great crowd, as you can see. And wow, what a motivating day. And I, and I shared my core values, actually, love, integrity, faith. And then someone said, together, lift. So love, integrity, and uh, faith, and then T, adding a lift. Uh, but my message was the same, uh, Reem, that uh, we must have justice for all people. And so even as we go into these other nations, because we feel there's oppression and in injustice being done, you're right. We have to look at ourselves and deal with the injustices that has been systemic from uh, your uh, being here and my being here since as long as we've been in America and before us for decades and centuries, actually. And so 
My call, though, is for all of us to come together, to be united, to be one. I, I, I don't personally like color terminology, you know. Um, I believe everybody has color uh, because it is true. I, don't, I mean, I say I believe. The fact is, let me say this. The fact is every human being has color. Not that I believe it. We have color. Nobody is transparent. Hello, hello. I don't see any transparent people there. And so, but I know it's the language we use today. But see, I am attacking the language for change because I believe the disparate language that we use of the terms, for instance, of black and white, opposite, good and bad. That's the connotation about black, right? Black ball, black male, black ship, black light, uh, uh, black list. Uh, it was a black cloudy day. If I use the word white, I think of righteousness, goodness, holiness, uh, angel food cake in the store says white. And if you go to uh, devil foods cake in the store, it's black. I mean, this is real stuff. It's like, why can't we see the subliminal messages that we use in everyday language? So now, why am I going to call myself a color? I don't want to call myself a color. I don't, I want to just be recognized as an American. If you must know my ethnicity, I am European, African, Hispanic. Okay. Now you know my ethnicity. I am multicultural. So, but identify me as an American. That's my nationality. Um, and that's what I believe we need to move to a new America because that's why I wrote the book, The Courage to Stand, A New America. And it was just my hope and dream to put a fire in America to say, this is the time, now is the time for America to move beyond antiquated language and terms. And when we move beyond the antiquated language and terms, we then can recognize the humanness of all people. We then, when we recognize that all people are human, which is what George Floyd caused, my goodness, it caused the world to stop, literally. People are angry about that because um, right after the George Floyd incident, my wife went to Mod's Pizza. As she was coming out of Mod's Pizza, she was called the N-word. And, and for what? Why? This guy was upset. He's a European. He thinks that all people of African descent are bad and we're taking over and we want our rights. And so he called her the N word. This is what I'm talking about in anger. But because we are now starting to see change, we can see reforms in the police department, reforms in our criminal justice system, which is really broken. Um, and we can see reforms even in our laws and legislative uh, departments. And so change must happen in America. If we can turn our, to, and when the Confederate statues were coming down, I'm just smiling. I wrote about this two years ago in my book that all Confederate statues should have been moved into some museum to not 
not remember the heinous history that these people committed treason against America, but yet we will put their statues in the middle of town centers. It's heinous. It's, 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 it's funny when you think about it, but it's really a bad funny. It's, 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 it's terrible that we can't see the differences of what we were doing to ourselves. In some ways, America has been hypocritical and I write this in my book, The Liberty Bell, which uh, came to America from France, um, uh, from England rather, um, uh, the Statue of Liberty came from France, but the Liberty Bell has a crack on it. And it says, the inscription says, liberty and justice for all, right? However, that crack has really depicted America from the foundation, I write in my book. That crack, of the injustice. That bell hasn't been uh, ringed in uh, many, many uh, centuries, uh, since, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, almost a century, uh, since D-Day, I think, was the last time. Uh, but the point I'm making uh, is that it, it is a symbol of a crack that says liberty for all, but yet that crack is there. And we haven't given uh, Reem, liberty and justice for all. And, uh, thanks for that. I think it's uh, really we all can be better. We all, we all can do better. And it all starts with the reflection and pausing and thinking about our um, uh, the different phenomena we're surrounded with. The phenomena of police brutality, the phenomena of racism, the phenomena of war, the phenomena of militarization. Um, all these phenomena are telling us different stories and telling us uh, different things that we can always stop and think about and reflect and see how can we do better. And mm -hmm. better for me is for us to be civil because that's what distinguishes, that's what we, we're all about, being yeah. civil. And, and so we, so I think the question we should be asking is how should we care better? Right. Uh, how can we care better? Care um, in how we conduct anything, um, any of those Phenomena are they caring phenomena? Are they not caring phenomena? Right. And and back to the identity, I think all of our identity, we all have multiple identities. Um, I'm I'm a global citizen. I am a Palestinian. I'm a Muslim. I'm an Arab. I'm a woman. All these things can um, I have, but I think um, we should have the the um, the power to to choose whatever identity we want to appear. You said, I am an American, and I think people should not impose on you an identity that you don't want, and I respect that. I don't want people to say to me, some people would say to me, you are a woman of color. Uh, that is an interesting thing, because if I was in Europe, if I was Italian, I'm white. Yeah. I was in Europe. When I was in Europe, I was, uh, people thought I was Italian. So I would, if I show up, by the way, yeah, I can see that. I can see that. I yeah. lived there for three years. Yes. Yeah. But now, because I'm from Palestine, they would say, "Ah, oh, you are a woman of color." So it's really odd. Uh, so color is really this complex, uh, complex phenomena as well. So I think we should be all alert to the labels people try to impose on us or systems, and really stand, um, stand for what we believe is true for us in our hearts and 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 care. Anyways, so uh, now it's time for Q&A. I think our conversation went on and on and on, which yeah. is fascinating. I can't talk to you forever. 
But we have a question from the audience uh, who, and thank you for being patient. So it says, Dr. Sean, thanks for your service to the communities around the world. I am very interested in spirituality and religion and many conflicts arise because of strongly held religious beliefs and the differences between them. But religion also can cross barriers and bring communities together. Domestically, within the current situation in the US, we seem very separated by race, politics, ETC. What are the ways that people of uh, stewing faith and different religious religions can come together to bring to bridge those gaps and bring about peaceful cooperation. So that's your question, Doctor. All right, thanks, uh, Reem, and thank you uh, for the question. Um, the is exactly what you and I are doing right now. You are a Muslim background. I am of a Christian background. We're coming together uh, despite those uh, religious views, but we find common ground and say. Uh, we respect one another and we, we share uh, the same values. Now, um, I think that has not always been the case across the world. There's been trouble around the world. And as you know, and so what we must do is learn to uh, uh, accept one another, um, respect one another, and ensure that when uh, someone who looks different than us, worships different than us, that we don't put them into a category of negativity. And the caller is right, uh, the person is right, that religion uh, has been a cause of war, no doubt, about people trying to put, America was formed, by the way, out of the rebellion of uh, religion, that everyone had to follow the, king, the queen's uh, religion. And so it, it's, it, it is ironic that it has caused wars, I agree. But at the same time, I think the spirituality part is where we can unite as one. Yes, we are spiritual beings. And because uh, spiritual teachings in all religions, uh, there's, there's many beautiful teachings in all of them, uh, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, uh, even in uh, atheism, like uh, in all the, uh, the Hinduism, I can't re recall all the religions, so my apologies for the religions I didn't mention. But all religions have beauty in them, and I believe in this concept of utility, where we can't um, deny an entire thing and not find the beauty in it. Oh, did we lose Dr. Sean? I think we did. Um, technical. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So... Um, well, we are about to, we didn't have any more questions and we are about to close. We are only have 10 minutes left. Uh, he's back. Okay. I'm still here. I'm still here. Yes, I'm still here. There you yes. go. Yeah, I thought, okay. I was like, oh, I feel bad because it didn't get to say goodbye and like appropriately, uh, but I'm glad that you're back. Yeah, the world of Zoom. I'm sorry about that. That's all right. <laughs> No, no, that was my uh, battery getting weak. And so I switched to a, a different device. So there you go. Boom. Technology. <laughs> so Dr. Sean, since we have some time left, we live in times of COVID. And I know that um, um, many people are struggling with COVID now. And we talked about how spirituality can be empowering um, for many people. Uh, so is there a... Um, 
a message you you want, um, or how can religion or spirituality really enhance um, and help community grieve and build resilience in times of hardship, struggle, um, and even death? Because you know many many old people now die alone, for example, uh, because of COVID. I've had many friends this um, COVID uh, in, in COVID recently who told me that their grandparents died. Um, um, some old women, a friend died and alone. And so how, how do we deal with this? Yes, it, it is a tough period, uh, Reem. We have, um, at the church, what we have been doing is advocating for people to remain connected, to stay connected, to reach out. Uh, don't let people be alone. So far, we've only had two uh, people that we know of um, to uh, contract uh, the coronavirus. Um, luckily, both are still with us, um, and and uh, we are constantly reaching out, making sure people are not alone in our community. And so, through Zoom and through uh, delivering food, uh, I did mention that earlier. We deliver uh, food to those who we call shut-in, the elderly who cannot get out and about. And so just to make sure that they're there. And, and, and then what do you do though with this devastating disease that has attacked 160,000, uh, caused 160,000 deaths in America that has become political. And these are the ironic things I keep saying. This should not be a political incident, but it is. Do I wear a mask or not? Are you taking away my freedom or not? No, we need to do what is right. If you look at the countries that we started off with when we all were accelerating, America is in the worst condition. While we make up 5% of the world's population, we make up 25% of the coronavirus cases and coronavirus worse deaths. That makes no sense to be the largest country superpower economically. We're still the number one country economically, but yet we can't control this virus because we have allowed political positions to uh, invade even our response. And so when we didn't do anything for those weeks, I, I just said, man, the government, we needed leadership from the top. We needed every state to do the same thing. All of this stuff about religious freedoms and I want to meet in my church and my synagogue and, and I, it just gets me. And, and, and wearing a mask or not wearing a mask, instead of following the science, we uh, uh, capitulated and we gave in to the uh, political whims. And that's why we are where we're at today. And so it bothers me. But from the church's standpoint, we keep, keep preaching hope. We preach uh, life. We tell people to stay connected. We say it this way, Reem. The, the church building is closed, but the church has never closed. So the, 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 the temple, uh, the synagogue, the mosque, they may be closed, but that community is not. And that's why... We, we say we're building community and changing lives. And so, yeah, I'm troubled that we're over 160 to 161,000, according to what reports you look at. 
but I do realize that um, uh, there's still hope. There's still hope and we won't, we won't give up. Thanks, uh, Sean. I have uh, two more questions, but I'll take one because uh, for the um, sake of time, it's from Alec. Uh, he says, thanks to an insightful conversations from you both, uh, is there a way that religious uh, epistemologies might impact the openness or closeness uh, to science, closeness to science, and how can those religious folks perhaps averse to science overcome their aversion? So basically, uh, the question is about the tension between science and religion and how uh, you reconcile that um, which is a really uh, good question, Alex. Thanks. Okay. Um, I deal with faith and I deal with science. And I believe the two can work together. I believe that God, while he can work miracles, Alex, while he can change things around immediately, and that is a fact. I mean, we believe that. Um, but at the same time, he... Um, also encourages us to have faith and works. And um, in fact, faith and works and works and faith. And either one without the other is dead. And so it takes faith to get through difficult times like this. That spiritual component that gives us resilience, that gives us hope, that gives us a sense of uh, there's something greater around the corner that's what sustains us in times like these. Um, uh, but at the same time, I must take the actions. You know, there's a scripture that comes to mind uh, to not tempt the Lord thy God. Uh, if I believe that God is a miracle worker and I want to see a miracle, so Lord, I'm going to throw myself down from this building to see if you can raise me from the dead or see if you can protect me from my fall. It doesn't really make too much sense. In fact, that is not what the Bible encouraged. The Bible encourages us from a faith perspective to trust in God and to not tempt the Lord thy God. And so we as believers must learn to trust the facts and, and the science. And, and we have to say that doesn't take away from my faith to, to get a vaccination or to wear a seatbelt. It doesn't mean I don't have faith to go to the doctors when I'm sick. I'm still believing uh, for the turnaround. But if the doctor gives me a news or says, you know, well, you have tumors that we cannot operate on. Well, what am I to do now? I'm to have faith. And that's all I can rely on. But what if the doctor says, well, we can operate on this particular tumor and your life will be changed. Do I say, well, I have faith, therefore I don't trust medical science. I don't trust the doctors. I am not going to do it. Well, some might argue that. There are some religious groups that do, in fact. But I am of the belief that faith and science are not separate, but work together. And we must follow uh, that science. And that's why I don't believe I'm rushing back to open the church. Uh, I'm getting calls. I get uh, people saying, you know, well, are you going to wear a mask? Yes, I wear a mask. So we try to practice those things to save lives. We believe in saving lives. And so my religious freedom is not encringed upon just because I can't assemble because of this 
this dreaded disease. And so I've learned to accept and respect that. I think I'd like to add, um, the way I, I see it is that we should focus on the principles of religion. Religion should not micromanage how, uh, you know, like the, the aspects of science. Uh, so it's really the, those arguments about, uh, you know, challenging science from first perspective in my book or in my opinion is really uh, arguing around the, the superficial uh, aspects of, of, uh, of, of the faith and really not talking about the spiritual principles. This, like really, for me, I think faith or religion is simple. Be kind uh, to one another. Be honest. Uh, don't hurt. Don't, do no harm to other people. Uh, reach out, collaborate, all the positive things. Um, and I really, when we are stuck in ideology, we lose, we lose that way. And I believe more, um, and I love the words of Queen Rani of Jordan. She says, extremists, and that's back to Taliban. Taliban kills, they are claiming to be Muslims and ISIS claims to be Muslims, but they kill Muslims and they kill, um, people who are in their communities, and that's none of the faith. Uh, uh, it's not what, what Islam wants to do, uh, because God says in Islam, we say if, if you kill one life as if you killed all humanity. So it's, it's really, um, it's, let's not talk about religion, but I, I wanna say in that way, but I wanna highlight that extremism has a religion of its own. And that's the words of Queen Rani of Jordan that I really cherish because moderates in all religions, what they share the same principles to care, to do good, that there's much more good people in the world than bad people. And I think we should start seeing that. Uh, and we should not forget that most of the population of the world is uh, populations that adopts religion. They wake up to worship, they go to the church, they go to mosque, they go to synagogue. So we should start to see the commonality between us and not let the extremists on any religion or any side define and hijack our religions. And really we should celebrate our common values. So that's really the message um, that I feel we kind of covered here, Dr. Sean. I want to thank you. Is there any last words before we wrap this up? Well, I just want to thank you, Reem, and I want to thank Anna behind the scenes uh, for working with you and uh, keeping us on tap. Uh, I want to thank all of those who tuned in and I and the many views we will get. I will post this on my Facebook page and uh, and I think we'll get many people commenting and looking at it. Uh, and I do want to continue to be a broker of peace. And I just want to say to those who are listening and who may listen later, that keep working together, respect each person as a human, uh, listen to one another, communicate with one another, seek first to understand and then to be understood. So I just want to thank you again, Reem, for uh, the pleasure, the privilege uh, to being here with you for this past hour plus, uh, just to share some principles of healthy living. Remember, at Highland, we always say it this way, we are building community and changing lives. Thank you so much, Dr. Sean. I mean, um, it is. it was an honor to talk to you and I feel we live um, in a world where we fear each other because we don't know each other. And I feel yeah. this platform allows us to learn about one another and uh, really oppression thrives in ambiguity and we are trying to shed light on issues and different opinions and celebrate and learn and evolve together. 
because eventually we have to live together and we can't afford to continue to disagree in, in, in violence and in, in wars and in conflict. And that's really the message we wanna build is that we as a community, we can be different and beautiful in our difference. And, and thank you, Dr. Sean, for demonstrating that we can still disagree on a few things or we don't have, we, we are so different in many ways, but we have a lot in common and we celebrate our commonality. So thank you all for joining us today. Um, I would like to highlight that, um, 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 thank you for joining us and uh, for the face uh, episode of season two of Together for Peace. Uh, I also would like to say that Dr. Nayland demonstrates how peace can only be realized when we all find our common ground. All religious practices tell us to love ourselves, our families, and our fellow humans unconditionally. It is through our shared human existence where we can unite together, be kind to one another, and be a part of the solution for peace. Uh, with your generous and dedication, uh, dedicated participation at the Together for Peace um, uh, has been a wonderful success in creating captivating conversations for peace building worldwide. You are the engine behind the rotary wheel for peace. Thank you for helping Together for Peace realize the power of turning our living rooms into platforms for positive peace, education, collaboration, and action. Please join us next week when we interview the fabulous Marsha Hunt, an Emmy award-winning producer and facilitator for Mediators Beyond Borders and Days of Dialogue. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, keep your smile big and your heart open. Have a wonderful weekend, everyone, and continue to wage peace. I send you all much, much love. Thank you. God bless you. God bless you.